Welcome back to Voicecraft and to the fourth and concluding dialogue on the Philosophy of Lack series with myself, Cadell Last, Alex Eber and OG Rose. This was live streamed on Cadell's YouTube channel in February 2022. Cadell invited the commencement of this dialogue with an abstract which reads as follows, quote, The philosophy of lack has sought to introduce the starting condition for thinking in the experience of something missing, a lack. The idea that something is always conditioned by nothing, and that nonetheless, this nothing is excessive, the place of wild drives and images. We now seek to bring a certain closure to our reflections by placing an importance on thinking that can both address from a place of lack, as opposed to addressing from the mode of explanatory presuppositions, and the hope of being addressed as a lack, as opposed to through ideological backgrounds. What is at stake in this conversation is not only thinking lack, but thinking how lack itself opens the space for the self and the other. Here we are not looking for closure in a theory of everything, but a closure in knowing that our theories are for the other, and that the other is an irreducible part of everything. End quote. My sense is that this fourth dialogue stands as both a helpful synthesis of the main themes developed in the series and simultaneously a fair introduction to the series itself. So if you're encountering this work for the first time, I don't think you need return to Lack 1 before engaging with this. Lack 1 discussed the foundations of something missing in being, taking a starting point in the territory of the pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides. Lack 2 discussed materialism as something conditioned by nothing, with starting reflections in response to the philosopher Democritus. Both Lack 1 and Lack 2 can be located as episodes 55 and 57 of this podcast, while videos of their initial streaming can be found on Cadell's YouTube channel and embedded into the show notes for this episode at voicecraft.io slash lack. The philosophy of Lack 3 was recorded in November 2021 and discussed excess with circling reference to Plato. I missed a good window to publish Lack 3 before Christmas last year, and have since decided to release it on Voicecraft in audio form on SoundCloud and in the show notes, but it won't show up in the RSS feed of your podcast app. Some of you will have seen it already on Cadell's YouTube, of course, and for those of you with interest in the series, it's well worth engaging with. But it's also the longest conversation of the series at over three hours in length, and in my opinion is worth listening to after engaging with other conversations in the series. For this reason and more, I thought a more limited republish would more helpfully curate the RSS feed. For those of you wishing to watch or listen to Lack 3, you can do so at voicecraft.io slash lack. On now to the philosophy of Lack 4, Address, where the first voice you hear will be Cadell's, introducing the series as usual. I'm glad that we moved away from the more structured approach you'll find in the first three dialogues. I do think it made for a more dynamic conversation that was able to provide a greater degree of integration to accompany the exploration and differentiation of perspectives shared. I'd like to share again my gratitude to Cadell, Alex and Daniel for their excellent contributions over a period of 9-10 to months, to Cadell for the invitation and orchestration of the series, to Daniel for his immense efforts at written consolidation and reflection on so many different threads that emerged during the project. And to Alex in this conversation in particular for meeting me in a productive point of disagreement into clarification and thereby my coming to appreciate his viewpoint on life and death more truthfully. And so here is Philosophy of Lack 4, the conclusion of a deeply worthwhile effort in exchanging language, frames and insights with an integrity of appreciation for the mystery we look out from and meet in reflection. 
known so intimately, lost and found, shared well among friends. And we're live. Welcome to Philosophy of Lack 4. Uh, I'm Cadell Lass, back with OG Rose, Tim Adlin, Alexander Ebert. This is our, uh, like I say, Philosophy of Lack 4, our fourth uh, fourth video in the Philosophy of Lack series. And there is a, a continuity and a, and a sort of a higher order um, meaning, I suppose you could say, to the Philosophy of Lack series. So it uh, might be worth sort of for both historical value of these videos um, and the sort of, I guess, for, for the viewer's own benefit as well, uh, sort of articulate what that continuity is between these videos. Um, basically, the first video focused on foundations and we used Parmenides as a jumping off point to think instead of the starting point of philosophy as absolute being, thinking of the starting point of philosophy as lack. Um, and that as a starting point basically started to transition towards the theme of these videos, which is taking an ancient philosopher um, and rethinking an ancient concept through the lens of lack. So with the second video, we uh, focused on the concept of materialism using de Democri Democritus uh, and of course, or Democritus. And of course, he's an ancient philosopher that's really often thought of as the foundation of materialism. Uh, we think about de uh, Democritus and we think about atoms. Um, we often don't think about also the void as the condition for atoms. And so thinking about Democritus from the perspective of lack. Uh, in the third video, uh, we talked about excess. Um, and in that uh, video, we're basically using Plato as an ancient philosopher, as a reference point. Of course, Plato can be thought of as an excessive philosopher in the sense that he is thinking about transcendental ideals. He's thinking about a realm of eternal forms. Uh, and we were trying to think about uh, those forms and we were trying to think about those ideals um, as something that emerges in lack. So you get the feeling here of the continuity of this series is taking ancient world philosophers, um, taking foundational concepts like being, like atoms, like forms, um, and thinking about how we might be able to rethink some of these concepts uh, from the point of view of lack. And that basically started with this feeling um, that I articulated to all, all three of my inter interlocutors of this feeling of something missing, this feeling of uh, a, a void. It really, it's a effective um, problem. It is a feeling of... Um, how do I make sense of this emotion? How do I make sense of this affect? And how do I engage in philosophy from this standpoint? Um, and I think that's a good segue into the fourth video, which will take us to this idea of the address. Uh, this has come up in previous philosophy of lack videos. It can be juxtaposed against the idea of explanation. Um, when we are addressing the other, um, we are going to try to take the perspective that um, it is actually the singularity of addressing the other person, um, which should be primary or can be thought of as primary philosophically over and above the explanation. 
Um, oftentimes when we explain things um, and when we're in a culture that privileges explanation over address, we can get too lost in generality and we can get too lost in um, sort of basically, you could say, forgetting of being, uh, forgetting of the being in front of us. Um, and also thinking about how the explanation actually is serving that being. Um, what is the value of that explanation for that being? Um, who am I talking to and why? Um, all of these types of questions in the framework of address um, change the way in which we explain, or at least that's what I would sort of posit as an interesting thing to reflect on as a starting point. So the ancient world philosopher that I think is a good reference point for the address is Socrates. Uh, Socrates is a, a philosopher who is always in some sense um, situated as a figure in a dynamic conversation. He's, he, is in, he, is, he is engaged with other people. Uh, he is addressing and being addressed by other people. His explanations are not just in a sort of disembodied or, or de-othered space. It's always with others. It's always with uh, uh, the other. And, and, and his explanations are oftentimes not so much about telling the other person what to think, um, but more so inviting the person into a dance or inviting the other person into a, a attention, um, which is involved in presuppositions. Um, so I, I want to here use this distinction um, of the subject and the subject's presuppositions as an important thing to consider when we think about address. Um, uh, what is the difference between the subject and the presuppositions of the subject? Um, how easy is it to get lost in the presuppositions and identifying with the presuppositions over and above um, being sort of engaged with the subject. How difficult is that? In my experience, intellectually, that can be extremely difficult sometimes, um, or even, even a constitutive feature of intellectual discussion. Um, and insofar as lack is an important concept here for us to think about this, um, I think about Socrates as a performance as kind of like a, a zero point, um, as, a, as a presuppositionless entity, as an empty subject as a subject without presupposition, or at least that's how he is presenting himself oftentimes. He is open, he is um, receptive to presuppositions and is not uh, necessarily um, trying to get other people to believe a certain set of presuppositions. So he's a very empty subject. And, 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 and the fact that a subject like that is, is, a, is a, used as an anchoring point for the history of philosophy, I think is an, is an interesting way to think about how we've been trying to introduce lack as fundamental to all of these ancient world concepts. Um, I, I wanna also add about Socrates is that Socrates is often involved in um, philosophy that's presented in a dramatic way and also that's engaged in moral problems. Um, so Socrates is interested in the city-state. He's interested in the way humans live. He's interested in political organization. He's interested in, 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 again, moral problems. And I think that we do need subjects who can function as this lack, subjects who can engage radically with the other 
without presupposition in order to really entertain moral problems. I think oftentimes morality gets a bad name because of the way subjects think about morality. Um, because sometimes it's easy to be ideological with morality um, because usually dramatically rethinking our moral systems or even becoming aware of our moral systems is effectively disturbing. It's emotionally difficult to grapple with big moral uh, problems, especially when they deal with our subjectivity, especially when they can potentially transform the way we uh, organize practically in the world. Um, so maybe one more point to offer before before opening it up to to um, the rest of the the panel here um, is that I think this cultivating a, a way of being that privileges address over explanation has deep practical consequences. And, and, and in my life, it has. Um, I think that specifically, it helps one to move through intimate conflicts. Um, because when you can move through, so very practical, and I try, I try to make my, my overall goal in philosophy is to make myself someone who's intellect is more and more serving practical problems in my day-to-day -day life. Um, but to be able to move through intimate conflicts with address, meaning that I think in my early 20s, I could have been seen as someone who was privileging explanation over address. Meaning I was just interested in explaining what I was interested in to people. Whereas I think now in switching from address to explanation, I'm much more concerned with who I'm talking to and why I'm telling them this information. And, and I want to become more that type of being. I, I want to become more the type of being that doesn't need to explain, um, but becomes a being whose explanation is serving address. Um, and also that when I'm being addressed, that I can be an empty subject. So if someone is addressing me with something that's actually emotionally disturbing, or if someone's addressing me about something which is somehow reaching into my being, um, that I can be the type of subject who can endure and move through uh, such being addressed um, and actually not be reactive. Um, if I'm being addressed in that way, because maybe they have something important to tell me. Maybe they're trying to tell me something which isn't in the actual content of what's being said. And that if I'm empty enough to perceive what it is that's being said through those presuppositions, that there can be some deeper understanding there. Um, and I think the second thing is as it relates to how I've been trained as an academic, I think as academics or even as professionals in general, um, we can fall into the trap of being a pre-programmed identity that just gives explanation over, again, serving through the address. So that could be even for the musician, right? Like just going up there and performing a certain set of songs, right? Just, or like for the professor, like I saw firsthand is like, my PhD supervisor would give the same presentation every year, right? Just the same pre-programmed presentation every year to a new set of students. There wasn't anything new. It's just the same explanations. 
And so I think becoming this entity, which is a program set of explanations, is something that is not only something that deadens the subject because you become too identified with a certain set of pr pr propositions, but also something that sort of limits your capacity to serve the moment um, and what's really being called forth in the moment. Um, so I think that's basically all I have to say here as a starting point. I hope that's a, a, a useful starting point, but I'll pass it to you, Daniel. Beautiful. Gentlemen, I love speaking with you. This is wonderful. And Cadell, I, I, everyone should know that Cadell has been um, framing these discussions by these ancient thinkers, picking them out and writing those incredibly elegant and beautiful descriptions in the YouTube videos. I usually just put links to my website. I don't write descriptions like that. It's really freaking impressive uh, and has helped structure this whole thing. And so, Cadell, thank you all the work that you've done. Uh, Tim, I've loved meeting you, getting to go to VoiceCraft, all, all of the different people meeting there has been delightful. Mr. Ebert, I think about freak, uh, freak Theory, Dead Cool, uh, Total Relations all the time, and has been extremely helpful in some uh, I, I, some uh, thoughts that I've been exploring, re-approaching re uh, Leibniz. So I'm grateful for that, and the, this is just so divine. Um, I, I love everything you said, Dr. Last. Um, you know, a, one way perhaps to, to put the um, address explanation distinction uh, that we talked about in the email, you know, explanation would be the physical process that makes it possible for your fist to hit a wall, where address would be the why you're hitting that wall. And explanation can be useful because if you know that when you eat a lot of chocolate, you have more energy and that might increase uh, your likelihood of punching a wall. Explanation, knowing how the body works, can help you not punch that wall. But you also cannot perhaps um, reduce the fact that you're punching that wall to the fact that you ate too much chocolate. Uh, it might have something to do with the fact that your boss uh, treats you like a number, that you that the stock market is crashing and you did not uh, diversify your portfolio. So on and so. But why didn't you do that? Well, because your dad made you think that being concerned about those things were materialistic. So you never learned those uh, financial skills and you have to come out of that. But at the same time, there's some benefit to that because you don't want to be materialistic. Oh, man, that's a whole story that you have to go through. We don't have time for that. Let's just do some presentation every year over and over again. Um, so, you know, one of the things on what you're saying, there is a temptation to explanation because it's very general. All of our bodies, if we go to that example, generally, generally have some similarities. We have similar impact. You know, if we eat chocolate, you have similar things activating the brain. Uh, if you uh, have high testosterone, there are similar things. So an explanation can uh, is more readily applied. Now, of course, not everyone has the exact same physicality, but it's something general. But once you get into a dress, crap, you got to go into the individual story. You got to learn why they have those thoughts. You got to go into the narrative that brought that person in their individuality to the place where they are punching a wall. And that is work. And that is hard. And you probably can't get an academic position by doing it. You probably can't write your dissertation on the story of Sam for why he's punching a wall, even though that work might be the most important and probably could easily be the most important work in the world for Sam in Sam's individuality. And in that uh, respect, there's a whole lot of incentive from an institutional standpoint, from an economic standpoint, to focus on explanation as opposed to address. Now, of course, these are generalities. There are certainly college um, fields, uh, professors that are in the business of address, that are seeing patients. We are generalizing. We are always, we're always dealing with maps and never the territory, and we're always seeming to overfit or underfit, so do forgive. Um, but I do love Socrates. Um, you know, I was... Um, I was looking at, uh, once you had mentioned that for me, oh, and the painting you picked is great for the description. Everyone should like look into the history of that painting on Socrates. It's really cool. Like some people think it's Plato sitting at the end of the bed and it's pretending like he's dreaming it. There's all these cool uh, symbols of different things. So again, you're really, yeah, you've got a wicked um, cover picture game too, Cadell. 
You're like wicked at that stuff. I go to your YouTube channel. I'm like, my gosh, look at that aesthetic guy. Anyway, uh, with Socrates is so um, fantastic because I was looking at a Euphafro. I am probably not pronouncing that right. I'm just a simple boy from Virginia, everyone. Uh, Euphafro or whatever, which is the one where, you know, Socrates is hanging out doing what Socrates does. And the lawyer boy comes up and Socrates is like, hey, man, where are you going? And Euphafro is like, oh, I'm going to court. He's like, wait, well, yeah. Is that where you go? Yeah. Oh, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going to, you know, convict this guy of murder. Socrates is like, what? That's not, you don't hear that every day. And he's like, oh, so who is this? Like, my dad. You can, you're convicting your dad of murder? He's like, yeah. And then, and then Yuvaro is like, Socrates, you are such a noob. Who cares if it's your dad? If he committed murder, it's wrong. Why do you, why does it matter if it's my dad? You gotta, you, you know, come on, man. And Socrates is like, oh, okay. All right. And they talk and they talk and they talk. And you get that famous uh, dilemma where he goes, okay, yeah, is it because Euphorphos like, well, the gods said it's murder's wrong, so we got to do it because that's what the gods said. And do note how convenient it is if the gods say do it because then you're just doing it and it's not your fault and you're kind of absolved of responsibility with kind of, you know, it's like an explanation that gets you out of having to address the fact that you're carrying it out hmm, on a personal level. But anyway, anyway, you know, this is where uh, Euphoro says something along, you know, where he's going, he says the gods and Socrates is like, is it good because the gods say it's good? Or, you know, is it, is, is it, or do the gods say that it's good because it's good, right? And you get this kind of paradox and, you know, we're not going to go into that paradox, but the point I want to get at is that Socrates is unveiling that uh, Euphoro, the lawyer, has a paradox there that he can't quite answer, that he needs to be able to answer, to be as certain as he is that he's doing the right thing, okay? So Socrates is bringing Euphoro to a place where it's like a, a, a kind of void, if you will, a kind of lack. He is lacking an answer to that paradox, but Socrates is simultaneously unveiling that he is operating as if he is not lacking that explanation, that he is sure of yourself. Now, Socrates is not saying that Mr. Euphoro should not go to court and he should not do what he's doing. But if you take seriously what Socrates has done here, the disposition, the orientation, the attitude by which one goes and carry out this uh, job would, it would be very different. You'd be much humbler. You'd be much kinder. You wouldn't be so self-righteous. A little bit of that uncertainty might actually be good for the soul. Uh, because when we're too certain, when we don't have enough of a sense of a lack, ironically, that actually tends to make us more self-righteous. You know, lack can sound very nihilistic and can sound very hopeless and all those different things. But actually, uncertainty can be good because you can have a little bit of that humility. Maybe you do go on and convict your dad of murder because maybe he indeed did commit the murder and that is indeed wrong. But you might not be so quick as to do it in a self-righteous way. And thus, by unveiling this paradox, where it makes it so Euphora, Euphafro, Mr. E, uh, cannot run to an explanation to avoid an emotional, to avoid the fact that he is choosing a decision on a kind of incompleteness that may or may not be right. And that, and that thus makes him responsible kind of in an existential sense, although lack is not equivalent to existentialism. There are existential dilemma, you know, there's dimensions here because you take responsibility for it and you also own the fact that you are operating on something you can only be confident in, but not certain in. And that will change how you address people once you take that seriously. Once you take seriously the fact that, I mean, basically if we go through Socrates, he's constantly unveiling that people are operating without um, full um, justification and foundation for their actions. Like he's unveiling that constantly, right? He is not saying that they are wrong. You know, that's what you can read, right? You can say, well, they're wrong. No, he's saying that you cannot know and that, and that you cannot know and yet you still must act. And so you're always operating in a kind of contradiction space. Oh, yep, you knew Hegel was coming. Of course Hegel's coming. Of course he was coming. 
Uh, you know, so there's this constant space of an AB, right? You know, if you could get a foundation and know that you were doing the right thing, well, then you're just doing it because it's the right thing. It's not, it's not you. And so you can, you know, however you act, whatever you do, it's kind of not in your ballpark. You don't have to worry about address so much. But once you take seriously that you're operating in a um, ontological lack, if you will, this, this lack of an ultimate justification and foundation, both ontologically and epistemologically, that radically changes how you act and how you behave. And that is a good thing. The philosophy of lack in this sense, and then I'll pass it on to Mr. Adlin, I think it is very important to see thus the philosophy of lack, just like uh, Dr. Last was stressing, having a practical benefit. It's very practical. In a good way, in a, more, in a moral way, you are being less self-righteous. You are being more open and also acknowledging your own contradiction, your own operating um, from a lack of a foundation, and yet you are still acting as if you fully have a foundation because that's the world into which you are Heideggerian throne. That doesn't mean you're wrong, but you can just not be so sure you're right. And that's a good thing because a world that had a lot less self-righteousness would be a better world. Um, and so I think Socrates is introducing us to that way of thinking, um, which is good for us. And the other thing, the last thing I'll say is the second way that I think um, Socrates is a very good teacher. Um, you know, he's constantly telling people like, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, you know, I don't know. Um, he really is participating and you know how hard it is to tell people you don't know something or, okay. You know, when somebody references a book and they're like, have you read that? And you're like, um, I heard of it. I know that book. No one likes to admit they haven't read something. No one likes to admit they don't know. No one likes to admit they can't follow the, the lingo or the terminology. Nobody likes that. And yet, and we do everything we can to hide that. Socrates, from a performative element, because I actually am going to, yes, I know in the dialogues we were talking before the talk, it's in the, the person is reduced to just agreeing with Socrates the entire time. But if we really take seriously that Socrates is admitting that he doesn't know, that he's not hiding the fact, then there's two things that's going on there. One, that is suggesting that that is something we ourselves need to do to really get to the place of lack where address is possible. And second, that also means that Socrates is kind of doing an address on himself. And what I mean by that is when the feeling comes up inside of him to hide the fact he doesn't know something, when the feeling comes up inside of him to act like he knows something when he doesn't, he doesn't give into that temptation. And in fact, that is necessary to become that zero point that Dr. Lass was talking about. He is resisting the temptation uh, to hide the fact that he himself is not complete. Uh, and basically, all of us live our lives having to decide to what, to, you know, we're all improving. We don't know what we're doing. You know, adults just are better at pretending like they know what they're doing. Uh, and we're, you know, there's mechanisms of uh, masking that, of hiding that. Socrates gives us reason to think that we mustn't do that if we are to be able to address people and to simultaneously be addressing ourselves, which you seem to need to be doing both in order to have a full address. You have to be, I like to say, developing with the other person, and developing with your own incompleteness as opposed to acting as if it's possible to develop out of that incompleteness, as if it's possible to develop from that incompleteness. Socrates is showing we can only develop with that incompleteness, with that lack, as opposed to ever think we can get to the place where we can develop from out of that lack. This is quite critical because there is development in the philosophy of lack, but it's more of a development with lack, as opposed to an idea that we can develop from out of lack. Now, that's not to say that there's no instances of developing from. For example, I can be addicted to alcohol most of my life and get to the place where I no longer want it. You can have instances 
of developing from. But there's always ultimate because of uh, essential lack that ultimate, there's always gonna be something, some part of that you need to be developing with. And maybe that's just the pride to hide the fact that you don't know something. So you always have to be developing with. And Socrates shows us that in order to successfully develop with, we have to put ourselves in a place where we don't hide the fact that we don't know what, we don't know everything all the time. And here's the thing. I guess this is the final point. That's emotional. You know, we always talk about the Socratic method. I, you know, if we take seriously what we're seeing here, it's almost like the Socratic embodiment. Not only is he going through a process where he is showing a lack of a fundamental uh, justification that people are operating off of a paradox, contradiction, all those other things. He is also putting him in a, himself in a place where he has to feel what it's like to admit that you don't know everything. He's, he, there's an embodiment element here. It's not merely a freaking method. You think it's a method, you're going to end up over-privileging explanation. What you see in Socrates is also an embodiment. And so I think, and then I'll give it to Mr. Mr. Adlin, a critical dimension of trying to move to a space where we um, rightly balance address and explanation and we make our goal address the subject people is going to require an embodiment, not merely a method. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Good to be back with you all. I know there's been some changes over the last few months for all of us in different ways. Yeah. Um, the point about embodiment and emotion is for sure important. I'm faced here with the challenge of not slipping too much into explanation to speak about address. And, um, I suppose the embodiment piece would speak to the manner in which we engage in this dialogue with each other in the context that it's also being watched. I think I've mentioned that every time. But <clears throat> there's a sense in which over the course of these dialogues, over the course of online participation and our adaptation to the digital and the changing of an age in any era, who we are and what we are addressing is in process of change and transformation. And that's, well, I suppose that just speaks to some of the uncertainty around the context of what it is to be an adult. That was also brought up as well, what it is to take responsibility for one's own agency to respond rather than to react, as Cadell was mentioning. And so there's a kind of probing in relationship to that. There's a call out and the hope that that call will be met with response. And then there's also being available to really hear that response. So I think that uh, COVID and the present governmental structures of control and mimetic propagation is an interesting real world bigger picture case of this uneasy relationship let's say or perhaps a um i mean the word perverted comes to mind but certainly an overindulgence in the mode of explanation as being that which is appropriate to um, move society um, one thing, I mean, we can think about the mode of explanation in some sense as relating to paradigms. Uh, those paradigms can be at 
sort of different levels we've obviously spoken about um, a more Newtonian world in previous conversations and how lack relates to that and materialism and all the rest of it. There's also paradigms of what it is to enter into conversation, what it is to address someone, right? We can mistake, I think, the protocols for what it is to engage in society, what it is to say hello and how to enter into a conversation or, or what's even permitted when you meet people in various various places. Often when that frequency of conversation wants to stay quite narrow, there's a sense in which we're only willing here to go within this narrow you know, mode of explanation that only touches on these particular points and we're going to have to endorse certain presuppositions about what those paradigms are that we're swimming in and speaking from without maybe even being able to name them. And so in the context of COVID, whatever the flavor of the day of what's happening is, you know, whether vaccines are safe and effective now before, you know, how to even remotely approach that given the complexity of, of the immune system and the sociological effects and the psychosomatic effects and um, just all of that. There's a situation here where at best, in the context of explanation, it's it must be seen as a kind of complex and evolving and updating dynamic. And uh, But if we only engage in that mode of explanation as I'm understanding it to be used without actually being able to address each other, then it's as if we're, I don't know why the hell this image is coming to me. It's kind of like, I don't, I'm just going to go with it. It's like, it's like with some sort of Pac-Man just eating each other in a weird way. It's just zero sum, get all the, get all the food, eat you up, get away from the ghost. This isn't the best, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mat. It's, you know, what an what an incredible thing to really address each other in the era of COVID, for instance. And I just mean that to point to this complex dynamic that um, that intimately addresses us at every level of our being, um, how we relate to the future, the past, the present, all of that, and it can obviously be immensely unsettling immensely unsettling so i guess i just mentioned this because it is and it remains the case that part of the context for our address today is one that finds itself in this kind of world where we might say um in 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 the <laughs> in the deepest ways address is called for it's lacking and paradoxically, or perhaps I'm misusing that word, part of what we've been exploring in this series is that the our inadequacy, the, often the lack of our courage, but also our wisdom and our support and our caring support for each other are some reasons why we resist being with our lack. So I did actually prepare a couple of things because I know that um, 
we're only going around in a circle just one time and uh, as it so happens i'm someone who takes themselves to be able to i mean there's very few things i have any sort of capacity to explain and i, I certainly <laughs> basically the things i seem to be most called to try and explain are things which are necessarily always beyond explanation and um well i'm going to bite my way into that in with just a few points um and some basic ones really so when we're speaking about the loki of address the and and i i almost there's perhaps a reason why using loki cadell and, and and not the word location or um or something else but i'm kind of but so with that sort of somewhat uncertainty about what the word loki means loci it's not part of my usual language we can say obviously the location of address is not just a newtonian location i mean someone might be situated in a particular place um, but it's not to static things it's to the imminent presence of the other from a stance that's open to the other's participation in dialogic manifestation of potential to address another is to invite another to be in a way that reciprocally opens to the inviting subject opens meaning to enter a relational process of knowing with the inviting subject there's a few other things i've written down and that's really the most radical thing of all and one of the reasons why again socrates is a perfect you know let's say fictional example of this i mean i socrates you know existed that that seems to be the case um but the, the way i relate to socrates is as a you know figure of fiction um for all intents and purposes and it is such a radical thing to invite someone to get to know who you are and to get to know them and it's a deeply confronting thing if, for instance, that sense of who I am as the inviting subject in this case might be someone who's touching on or um, coming from, or in some sense, possessing of types of explanation, which might really dislodge someone's mind, someone the paradigms which compose it. And so it's a beautiful thing. It's a remarkable thing. And there's lots to talk about there. And um, fuck it. I'll pass it on. Good to see you all. Here you go, Alex. Hello. All right. Uh, you can hear me? Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah. Okay, so we're only going around once. Okay. Yeah, I likewise wrote some stuff down. I'll respond uh, something Tim just said. Um, uh, uh, this is just a thought, but I think it's for me correct. Uh, if I invite you to get to know me, I'm inviting you to get to know how I relate to my own dissolution. That's that's ultimately what you that 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 is how that is what you are to me. Um, I get to understand who you are in relation to your own existential dread. 
that's essentially at the end of the day what I'm getting to know. How do you relate to your own dissolution? How do you relate to your own death? How do you relate to the void? Uh, determines basically everything about you because from my point of view, the subject um, is formed in relation to the void. Um, let's see, I'm gonna just read something off. Lack comes from the existential dread of the transitory nature of the subject. The oneness of total relation or the big other or God or oneness, whatever we want to think of that totality is desired at the expense of the ego, in my opinion. The ego actually requires the lack, the division, the demi-relation, and it requires that lack to persist. In other words, lack forms the ego and thus lack becomes instrumental to the ego. Thus the ego itself is neurotic. Um, when I'm getting to know you, I'm getting to know essentially you in relation to nothing. How do you deal with that, etc. And so this manic sort of neurotic process, um, we've been talking a lot about address. Um, and I also like for those watching uh, to address someone, you know, etc. It's, it's, it's actually very simple language. It's being used in a way that I think can sound confusing. We're just talking about the confrontational aspect of addressing oneself and the problem as opposed to just explaining the problem. And, um, and yet we don't want to involve our subjectivities because we don't necessarily want to think about how we arise from our relationship to the void, our existential dread. And so instead, I think we don't address, right? What civilization has largely done, the whole goal of civilization and its immortality projects is to pre-dress so we don't have to, we don't have to address. So we get these pre-concocted, and I think a bunch of you were talking about this and referring to sort of these um, pre-concocted, prefigured uh, uh, rubrics uh, to prefigure our spiritual transformation for us. Um, and, and so we get all of these sort of pre-dressings. Um, now, uh, these pre-dresses uh, are supposed to give us sort of uh, comfort. So we, we were born in the world and, and religion, for instance, we're given a religion. It's like, this is going to sort of short circuit your need to address yourself in the void and give you sort of a, a, a way to preemptively prefigure yourself in relationship to the void as either eternalized through heaven or whatever mechanism. Um, and so these things may give us comfort and we need more and more of them. Um, what we really lack, or what we think we lack, is comfort. What we really lack is contentment, um, which is something that would give us uh, less and less, as opposed to, uh, to more and more. A process of less and less is contentment. Uh, and, and so maybe, you know, just to throw another silly word out, um, antidress, something that does not require or that incorporates the self and void as the same thing. For instance, oh gee, you said something which was that, um, uh, where was it? Something like uh, incorporate the self with other, or constantly, uh, oh, I, anyway, you said something like we have to constantly grow or, or understand the self or, or, or comprehend it with uh, the other or with the void or with, you know, the other, right? Um, but uh, the self is another. 
the self itself is another. The self is not itself. Um, so if we think about, you know, the mirror stage um, and, you know, oh, that's me. That is me. That is me. Um, so where is the location of the self without it being another? Um, what I'd like to propose is that um, lack cannot be another. Absence cannot be another. It's the only thing that cannot be othered is that which is not there. And so that which is not there is the self. Um, so that, and, and I think uh, Tim was alluding to this, so that um, the absence, the lack, the void is an ingress, an invitation, so that when we're doing this reciprocal sort of invitationally to get into conversation or, or whatever it is, we're inviting one another into um, our own relationship and orientation to the void. Um, when you enter the void, when you enter another, you become the other, which is uh, in effect uh, their own relation to the void or the void itself. Um, the void is the adversary, the ego, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, and then the last thing I guess I'll say, um, is that um, how do we redress? So we address, you know, the, the problem. And for me, the problem uh, or the, the thing to correct is, um, is this relationship to dissolution of self as self. And how do we redress that? Um, one, we can fill that absence with something, an idea, et cetera, and that gives us comfort and that comfort is contingent on whatever those things are working for a time. Um, or we can um, recognize that absence as the only thing that nothing can be, in my opinion, which is everything. So we recognize the absence as a totality. And we fill it with the only thing nothing can be, which is everything. Um, and so, you know, in, in, a, in a large sense, for me, in, in my own personal experience, when I feel that existential dread, the confrontation, the address, the incorporation of self into the relation, my relationship with the void or with nothing or with absence and with my own lack is the becoming of the void. That's the only actual redress is sort of an anti-dress. And that provides my contentment where there is no redress, there is no filling, suddenly I just recognize that I am it. Now what that does though, and immediately, and the feeling is always immediate, is it, it dissolves the ego because the ego requires the lack to demi-relate itself, to differentiate itself from all other things. Um, oh, one more thing. So Socrates' daimon, uh, which you guys mentioned, it only spoke to him to tell him not to do things, right? According to for a fable. And I love that um, in that um, in his, voc his, his vocation um, was, well, I wrote this down somewhere here. Uh, yeah, lack, not knowing is the spirit of vocation for Socrates. So, so that um, everything else is sort of inertia. And then when he's called, 
when he hears his vocation, it's to stop. It's, it's the not knowing, it's the, the dissipation of the inertia and the making room for um, the lack as uh, the, the pause and the, the, the ingress of wisdom. Anyhow, uh, yeah, it's great to be here with you guys, and I'm excited to open it up. Cheers. All right, great. Um, I think that in my in my view, what Ebert just went over is a good example of basically the entire theory of the Lacanian subject. I mean, I think if you if you go through what Ebert just said, there's there's a lot there. I think that mirrors basically what Lacan's trying to point towards as sort of the emergence of the specular image of the self in the mirror, where you become alienated from yourself, where you get identified with an image um, of wholeness, where you get an ident identified as an image of oneness, where you get identified with an image of totality, the big other. And then you go through a process of, of dissolution, of falling apart where you realize I am the, the lack, I am the void itself. And the only thing I wanted to say about that process is that I think that that's a necessary process to go to, to go through, sorry, um, to actually be a subject capable of address um, and capable of um, really the challenge which Ebert was pointing towards, which is to actually relate to the other involves, I'll use the language of the irreducible non-relation, which is the existential dread, which is that I'm getting to know you through your death, through your void, through how you relate to that death, to how you relate to that void. And all of the systems of explanation, all of the, all of the positive ideals and all of the positive images of an other world or a better world or something like that, not that a better world isn't possible, but all those images of a better world and all of the systems of explanation, especially the systems of explanation, which are general and not located within the address are really um, safety mechanisms or defense mechanisms that are guarding this anxiety of going into the existential dread and actually relating and building real communities. And I think that, or building real, not real communities, real, I mean, that might not be the right word, but real social relations. And the, the example I wanna, wanna give um, that points towards that, that's practical in my life is, I think the sort of mega transition or the meta transition that, that I've tried to mediate in some sense between the type of relationships that I experienced in an institutional framework and the type of, sorry, the type of relations that I experienced in an institutional framework and the types of relations that are kind of emerging in my digital network which are not really institutional identities. I think what I'm trying to achieve with the relations in my institution, in, in, my, in my digital network, are relations that are built on a type of radical potential companionship. Potential companionship, which are 
tiptoeing towards what Ebert was saying, which is to really have a companionship of the void or a companionship unto death. Why not? Why not a companionship unto death? Otherwise, what's the point of a long-term vision? What's the point of a long-term project? What's the point of really collaborating in, a, in, 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 in the first place? Now, we always say um, in a marriage ceremony, until death do us part. I think that why not um, think about these things as it relates to social relationships beyond the traditional sexual union. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm thinking about a specific structure. More thinking about an ethical directive or an ethical axiom of the attempt to do great things with the other, um, which is really including the subjects. Um, and, and what I would juxtapose against that, now I'm saying this is very, I'm just trying to think this, right? But what I would juxtapose against that is, um, you know, there are a lot of people within, I'll speak to what I, what I know, which is sort of the academic structure. There are a lot of people in the academic structure, which in principle, because they got hired by the same university, will end up in the same sort of faculty with each other for until they retire. But they never really like each other that much. And they might dislike each other immensely. And the reason for their coming together is not really because of some deep truth search that they share. And it's not really because they really want to know the other person unto death. But it's just because, well, I happen to get hired here. And you also happen to get hired here. And, well, I guess we'll tolerate each other. And we have to go to some meetings together every now and then. We'll try to pay attention as best as we can, but we're really not really paying attention. So I think that this is this is interesting to think. I think that you have, to, on the one hand, just to point towards what Ebert was, just to like sort of bounce off where Ebert left off. I think you have to have an understanding of the subject, which has to go through some traversal of the fantasy, to use the Lacanian terminology, of this oneness of this of this oneness, which is really not the subject, but is this is identification with this with with an image, and which is which can be a system of explanation. It can turn into a system of explanation, and you have to traverse that in order to be the type of subject that knows you are the void. And then it's possible to relate to the others and to um, now. The thing is, is that you cannot traverse another person's fantasy. You cannot traverse another person's fantasy. And the traversal of the fantasy is painful because it's the shattering of illusions. It's the shattering of your most cherished values, which are really not having any ground to them. And it's the invitation to a quite radical form of relationality, which involves processes unto unto death now that could involve subjects in a sexual relationship as is typically 
how it unfolds. And I think we should also entertain the possibility of higher forms of that sublimation. That could be related to art. That could be related to philosophy. That could be related to religion. That could be related to other creative endeavors. But it requires this level of understanding of subjectivity. Can I jump in with a couple of things? Um, that was great. And the reason I'll do it is partly just to like, uh, just to like throw a boulder in the ordered structure, just because it's so hard to, to, to get out of it. Um, but also because I'm sensing some links here with where we ended up dialoguing at the end of the last conversation. It was to do with death. And um, I'd like to respond mostly to what I'm hearing from Alex, because over the course of these coming couple hours, I'd love to understand more what you mean. Um, there were a couple of things you said, which I felt initially, hmm, that doesn't, I don't quite agree, but I don't fully understand what you mean. So that's exciting. Um, I don't relate to address, for instance, as um, confrontation only. Um, and nor do I see coming to know each other as defined in terms of knowing someone as just their relationship to their death or relationship to death. Um, there's, it's almost like here language can play some tricks because um, I could just as well talk about how one relates to life. And then we're going to be talking about one's relationship to death the relationship between life and death but there's sort of there's like a po there's like a poetic directionality or how we um how, how we find ourselves in in some sense distinct but deeply interrelated modes with respect to this phenomenon that's how i relate to it so an example might be something like not only um so so um so It's always wondering how personal to, to, to take these things sometimes in, in public speech. But let's say I'm walking along down the street and my partner, she recognizes a flower she finds to be beautiful. This is a classic example. And she'll stop and we could be in the middle of just about anything. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to share in that appreciation. For that, um, in this case, my appreciating that another being is so drawn to appreciate something beautiful in the world. Now, of course, that flower is in a process of dying, right? And in some sense, the relationship between what is viewed there and its own um, returning to void is partly what makes this such a, such a profound thing. But it's a matter of how to present it almost. There's how one has developed to enjoy life to live it well as well as to know how to be in relationship to the fullness of its blooming and its departing which, which which seems important and so i think also of a surrender to the moment and we've spoken about this before alex a little bit with the dynamics of confrontation and surrender i see if address is understood only in terms of confrontation then this 
becomes only a mode of discourse that's about sharpening of swords. And in its best form, it can be that kind of um, seeking of truth by that kind of martial combat, like held really well. But the reality is if we only have that, for me, it necessarily becomes a situation where one person gets killed or, or humiliated to the point where they're no longer participating. And we can say there's a value in that, but also they're prevented now from participating in the ongoing dance of what could be. Sometimes that's appropriate. I'm not saying it's not. But the, in, in a mode of surrender to, to an, an ongoing like, like mutual knowing is to... It, it, in a sense it's to let go to death as well i mean both confrontation and surrender we can talk about them in terms of relationship to death process and also relationship to life process but we can also say like a, a surrender into what someone might present to me as worthy of my appreciation in in life right as worthy of being here right as there's a there's a wellness that has come into my field and it's part of my getting to know myself and the other in process and so ultimately the, i feel intuitively where this goes is is we'll reach the limitations of language as medium for explanation of how we address each other and we can cash out in a way that looks more towards speaking about things in terms of death or maybe we can uh, if if there's something i'm coming from that's that's worthy here we can we can also mention we can we can also mention we can also mention life and understand the self as as um from from both of these angles um there's something about the uh of of no that's maybe two separate a point i think it'll come out over the coming couple hours but i wanted to sort of say this at the beginning because it maybe gives us something to wrestle with a little bit here over the course of the coming couple hours yeah yeah may i may i uh, respond to that then um yeah um so first of all um confrontation to me is not necessarily sharpening of, of swords um it's the opposite of avoidance um if we do not if life does not have death present there is no existential crisis there is nothing for the self to relate to that potentially dissolves the self. There is no confrontation. Um, when we think about getting to know somebody, we think about getting to know their identity. Their identity is formed in relation to, um, well, to others, right? To demi-relation, to, to like every, every identity is formed in relation to others. The opposite of identity, of course, is the dissolution of identity into everything else or into nothing, however you prefer to think about it. So when we're getting to know someone's identity, we're getting to know some, how someone manages the negentropic force of preserving self against its own dissolution. That is what identity, the preservation of identity, the preservation of redundancy of personality from day to day to day is. It's a negentropic force of being against its own dissolution. And so in that sense, just getting to know someone's identity is getting to know their operation of negentropy. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'll just, I'll just say that, that um, I do think that, that 
I'll stand by my comment, essentially, is what I'm saying. Um, you, you mentioned some other things, um, but I think that that sort of um, addresses that. I just wanted to say, though, that, um, yeah, I just wanted to emphasize this idea of confrontation being the opposite of avoidance. And I'm sure there's another word that does not sound as sort of heavy or, or whatever. But what I'm really saying is that when we're getting to know someone else, we're really getting to know ourselves in that we're getting to know um, what it is to be in relation. Like, you know, poetry. What is poetry? But the presence of death elevating beauty um, or the mundane to the beautiful. Uh, the reason sunsets are beautiful, right, is because of their transitory nature. I mean, the reason a kiss or a relationship gets elevated to beauty, like when I get to know someone, what I'm really getting to know is how do they relate? How poetic are they? How, how in tune with how are they relating to their own death? Because, of course, we're all alive. But very much vitality can be measured uh, in proportion to uh, what extent someone has come to peace with or to what extent and what variations and mutations someone relates to their own death or to the transitory nature of life. How much are they trying to hold on to it? That will describe very much about their personality. How much are they willing to let go of it? That will also describe how many risks they're willing to take, how vital they are, right? And so very much to me, when we get to know someone, it's in relation to their relationship, uh, their understanding um, with uh, uh, the dissolution of their eventual identity or the dissolution of the moment um, and to what extent that uh, inscribes their embrace of, um, of life. Yeah, understood. I can just take 20 seconds here and say, I hear you. I think, the, I think and I, I like what you said, um, it seems like the the difference really in terms of where I'm coming from is, is you had the sentence there, well, of course we're alive. And basically what I'm saying is, well, of course we're going to die. And depending on which of course we're coming from, then I think we can use this language in, in a, in a different way. And sure. Anyway. Uh, sure. But I, I, I would, I would, I would argue against that uh, because to me, um, of course we're going to die. I do not like, of course, contextually, if we were if we were part of a world that was all um, just all about embracing death, like 90 percent of people wanted to be death doulas, all the children in preschool were like, I want to be a death doula, you know, and uh, and everyone's like, oh, like I love aging. Isn't aging the best? Like, oh, just getting all wrinkly and all that. Like, that's just the best, you know, then then maybe I'd be like, hey, we're also like, you know, maybe shift the balance. But the reality is that society largely avoids these conversations. And so I think that, of course, we're all going to die is largely a statement of avoidance, given the context of the culture and society that we've lived in for thousands of years. Um, the, the focus um, is uh, largely on, uh, you know, putting death as far to the side as conceivably possible. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I guess that would be my little retort there. I get that. I'm not coming from society. I'm coming from me in a dress. So that would be the difference. I agree with you as far as like the statement about society and some, the point you're making as to like what's relevant to sociologically in the sociological context of our time. 
But as far as I understand, this conversation is about the dynamics of address itself. And so for me to say, of course, we're going to die, there's a sense in which there's like a, there's like a magic of whether we recognize that in each other. And from there, then we can choose also how to live in the time we have and we can use the language in, in that way. I was just going to say, Daniel, we'll, we'll get to you uh, next because I, I think that, yeah, you, you, we got we to gotta get you to jump in. The only thing I want to say to Tim is that the way I was interpreting Alex was that actually this is a mechanism by which um, real ethical lifelong projects can be formed in a positive life-affirming way. Um, that if we do not accept this, then we are never given the limit point of our identity from which to really think <coughs> life-affirming projects in the totality of our being. Um, so I, I think that, that what's at stake is, um, is really an identity that can, can, um, can relate to others who are really looking to make something of their life which has potentially never existed before. And they can only do that because they're willing to transform their identity into something other, something that something that's never existed before. That, that can only be done by a being who has, has confronted that, that, that sort of existential reality in an emotional sense. But Daniel, go ahead. Delightful. And, um, you know, I was under the impression we went with the low key of address because it sounds like low key and Marvel and the algorithm would give us all the Disney Channel loci. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm a Virginia boy. I can't pronounce. Now that we've got negography, we might get like Negan walking dead with the algorithms this is all going to work out. Opposite of entropy. Very, very nice. Um, you know, a few things. Um, you know, uh, so first off, it's important, like we've tried to in the philosophy of black discussion, sort of talk about our ontology. And it's important that we understand um, what we ontologically really are, because in order to address people, we have to know their address. We have to get their quote unquote location correctly. And if we think that human beings are, say, AA, that they don't need death or they don't need dialectics or any of these things, then what constitutes address will be quite different. And that could lead us astray. So it is quite important. That's why we've, we've done all these different things. Gentlemen, isn't it really hard to be dialectical? My gosh. You know, one of the great problems is that language almost by definition cannot be dialectical because you can only talk about one topic at one time. So, for example, you need to both have a um, understanding of the role of life and the understanding of the role of death and understanding of the role to try to hold on to something that you care about, but also the importance of transience. Well, the, the very fact that I said hold on to something first creates the impression that I think that's more important than the transients, but I had to pick one topic first before taking the next. So now I've created this impression of where my values are and crap. Uh, language basically, space-time makes dialectical speaking really freaking hard. And that's why, in my opinion, having fun looking at academic journals, man, you can make an entire career just criticizing emphasis. Like you can so make an entire, crit, like just saying that these thinkers over here are overemphasizing uh, you know, the continental tradition and they need to have some analytical stuff. Dude, if you, if you literally had a paper that emphasized everything equally the way you need to to be dialectical, nobody would read it because it would be really long and difficult. So you always have this great tension that you have to deal with. You know what Mr. Ebert is saying? If, um, there was no, if, um, if you never died, then life might not be precious, right? You know, the very fact that you can die can add a sort of value to it. But at the same time, if you weren't alive, you couldn't die because you just wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be born. And so you couldn't have that valuation. I think also this gets into why you need lots of different philosophers, lots of different thinkers, lots of different artists doing different things. So for example, 
someone who may be struggling with, um, you know, uh, the value of life, depression, they might have just broken up a relationship. They may need a philosophical um, doctrine that's going to emphasize the importance of life, the importance of, say, taking those walks and seeing those flowers. And that may be what needs to meet them at a particular moment in their life, because that's the emphasis they need to get back to a dialectical balance. But let's say that person reads that philosophy when they're say 26 and they you know, get back up and they're like, you're right, life is worth living. But then 32, there's some CEO of a big corporation that's trying to live forever and doesn't care much about mother nature uh, because they just wanna keep their stock value up. Okay, well at that point in the person's life, they need to be reading Mr. Ebert's work on how life becomes cancerous if you don't have any sort of acceptance of death. So you can also have a moving, um, a moving scale relative to people's lives and, and different things like that. Um, and that also actually gets into what you were saying, uh, Mr. Mr. Adlin, on the system and the state um, and explanation. You know, one of the reasons you actually have to now it's it's a twofold thing because because the bigger the scale, the bigger your nation state or whatever, the more you're going to need a system to organize that difference that actually can't address all the particularities or become dysfunctional. But if people on the ground aren't doing the work of address with say their neighbors or their friends or different things, then you can have a lot of explanation that leads into a sort of smothering of people that doesn't feel good. And then people react poorly against that, even if say the system has their best interest in mind, and then you get a lot of dysfunction, right? Like for example, you mentioned vaccines. Okay, well, you know, maybe there's someone who doesn't want to take a vaccine because when they were a little kid, every single time their dad yelled at them, they held a knife and they shook it at them. So when they see a sheep object, they like get very nervous. So the way you're going to get that person, say, to take the vaccine, if you think that's what needs to be done, is you have to address the fact that they have a childhood reaction against something sharp, right? Well, if you're just a nation state and you're just telling everyone you need to take this or you're an idiot, you know, you're not going to address that person and actually make them open to that possibility. So that's the danger of when you get a system, you can have a loss of that address that needs to occur. And then people get upset and then they, you have a populist uprising and you know, that's not too good for anyone. Um, so that's where you need those, those two spheres. And so likewise, um, if, if there was only a single philosophy that emphasized life and everyone had to learn that philosophy and that, well, you would not address the people that actually need to learn a little bit about death. Uh, and in fact, you would make them cancerous, right? So this is where their need, the very rea ontological reality of lack and the very fact that we are in time and therefore cannot be everything at once, it must be dialectical, is why you need a kind of diversity of thought, right? But where there's diversity, uh, here's the problem. Ah, frick. I think we mentioned this last time. So, you know, if you have a symphony orchestra and everyone's playing different instruments to make the whole music possible, well, then the guy playing the piano can look over at the cello and be like, man, you know, I'm better than him because I play a violin because he cello sucks. The person playing the violin can think... Um, be insecure because they think the singers are getting all the attention. The moment you introduce diversity, well, then you introduce con confronting of the ego. And I took what Mr. Ebo to be saying with confrontation is kind of confronting, almost facing, right? You know, kind of the facing of, maybe you could say the facing in different things. And when it comes to the topic of the ego, it does seem like confronting. It is a little bit more of a fighting kind of language with your own self-importance in, in different things like that. But that's a linguistical thing. On the flip side, you don't always want to be um, in a fight mode to where then when you, uh, that can actually turn into almost the nihilistic skepticism. When someone's talking about how beautiful a flower is, you like put up your defense mode. It's like, no, nah, you're just falling victim into aesthetics and you're not, uh, you're, you're losing touch with the need to appreciate the transience of life, right? You can almost, you can take that too far, right? Overfitting, underfitting, like they talk about in computer science and so on. Um, and, and so, um, 
you know, when it comes to facing the ego, there, there is a kind of having to fight it. I think that's um, what, what Mr. Ebert is saying on associating the ego with lack. Um, I guess um, to me, when we talk about that freight facing and confronting, this is what I would say when I was talking about the develop with as opposed to develop from. There is a question of what is the space, like the literal space in which you um, fight your ego like where it comes out and you actually have to, to deal with that sort of that sort of fighting. Um, and that's what I meant. It does seem to have something to do with the other. It's almost like when you can like when you're with the other, that's where your insecurities, that's when your nervousness kind of comes out. And it's almost like you have you other and it's almost like a third thing, almost like a triangle. It's like the Damien's fighting or something. Those could almost be your egos, right? Between those two people. And what's interesting is what I guess I was saying with Socrates, talking with people in the street, he is confronting his ego in a place where he's with other people and has to fight the urge to support his own ego. And he has to continue to sort of stress that he doesn't know things, right? You know, why is why does the oracle say that Socrates is the wisest of all? Well, because everyone knows nothing, but Socrates knows he doesn't know everything, right? That's what he's so wise. I think that second no, I would associate that with something much more full body, not just intellectual where you're going to a place and you're feeling the fact that you don't know everything. You're feeling the tendency of that ego to come out and refuse to die, which then makes you cancerous in a problematic way. And that ego gets in the way of your ability to say, look at the flowers, like Mr. Adlin was saying, right? And so it's in, it's, I guess what I say when I'm talking about developing wit, you do not, um, you do not confront the um, ego sitting in this office right now uh, from, away from, the person down the street who has, um, who uh, tells the same story three times, dirty fingernails, and is kind of boring, right? You don't confront your ego here thinking about that. You confront it by going inside the real, if we're talking the Lacan, going to them, uh-huh, and, and having your ego come out in that context and fighting it. So, like, the developing with your ego in a sense of trying to overcome its tendency to not die and thus become cancerous the question is, the in this sense, it's the location of where you address that. And it would seem like the other person has a role. And I do like what you're saying on the ego kind of almost being a thing that you are with. It's almost like you have, it's like you, ego, other. And that that triangulation, and it's all developing with all of that in, in that particular space. Now, the last thing I'll say is, you know, you don't necessarily want to be going and trying to confront your uh, ego as such in the context of someone who's like, radically different and radically like very difficult to be with. Um, and that's what happens. You mentioned academia. That can happen. You're just kind of, you know, you're born in Virginia, you have interest in philosophy, and then you're thrown on an academy, you know, on an academy with someone that's radically other. And you didn't have any like gradual training to that place. I think this actually suggests the need of kind of a gradual process of different degrees of otherness. So you can have different degrees of confronting, confronting the intensity of your ego. Uh, so that you can get to a place where you can handle those more extreme differences in the same way that when you go to the gym, you don't want to go straight to the heaviest weight because you may tear your muscles as opposed to build them up or things like that. So then that would almost get into a need of a social uh, ritual as such. Um, yeah, no, I just um, I appreciate y'all's thoughts so much. Um, I want to clarify a few things um, and and just banking off of um, what Daniel was just referring to, um, and regarding confrontation, um, in, in my view, um, the void, um, is, um, 
in the, constantly threatening. The dissolution of identity is the sort of arch enemy of, of the ego. The ego depends on that, um, that contrast. Um, without it, the ego dissolves its identity and, and just sort of dissolves. Also, without confrontation, um, why, I'm unaware of how one surrenders. Um, and the surrender, um, you know, in the case of, you know, this conversation is to the, uh, to the lack itself. Um, and, um, and again, the ego being antithetical and also regarding just the formation of the ego, the formation of the self being initially, I just love the idea of this big other mother, this warm presence, this throbbing, uh, oneness, this, this, this wholesome sort of sense of, uh, of, of, of oneness as nothing as a dissolution, dis, dis, dissolved state. And then that thing keeps disappearing. When I was a kid, my, my father wouldn't let my mother come check on me when I was sobbing. He's like, nah, I'll leave him. And it was this whole thing. And my mom told me later and she made her cry. And he's like, couldn't stand it. So they put me in another room and I would just sob and sob. And so of course I formed, I could not count on this big other any longer, right? This, this unity, I had to form my own in response. And so my ego forms, individuates as, as a defense mechanism against the instability of this, uh, of this big other, right? And so my ego is entirely formed and individuated and therefore formed and therefore dependent on um, the lack of dissolution that I'm simultaneously drawn to and desire fundamentally to return to. And yet my ego says, no, we're going to stay um, individuated because we cannot trust that thing, right? To be there. Um, anyway, so that's the confrontation that I'm referring to. Now, uh, you know, there's something fundamental about Tim, what Tim you're bringing up that, I, that I'm struggling with. How does one define life as life? How does one define light as light? Now I can define everything. I can define myself as life from the position of death, or I can define myself as death from the position of life. But how do I define myself from the position of life as life? There is no contrast. And so- Of course they're into defining. Of course they're into defining. I'm definitely not holding the position that they're not. Sure, but what, what I'm saying is when we get to know someone, we're getting to know them in relation to something. And if I take that person to be alive, let's just say, for the sake of abstraction, that I'm getting to know them in relation to something that is confronting uh, or, or, or their potential dissolution into that. Or if I'm getting to know them as death, I'm getting to know them in relation to what it is to be alive for them. But I can't get to know someone and I'm who I'm taking to be alive in their relation to being alive. I will, I will get nothing in return because there will be no contrast uh, from which to pick anything up. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to throw all that out. I just wanted to also say in regards to this, again, in my view, in my uh, understanding, um, this Lacanian metaphor of the big other as a mother, as a warm presence, as a throbbing oneness, which I think is the proper metaphor because we're all come from a womb. Um, we are fundamentally uh, entities that start out in 
this weird um, fetal incubation and we don't give enough thought to that as our starting condition and we don't give enough thought to the fact that our bodies are literally screaming, literally uh, dying for a return to this uh, state of being. Um, but that when I was responding to Ebert the first time, I likened this relationship to the death of identity to a potential grounding place and home uh, from which a certain type of subject might form a um, ethical vessel, um, might find companions who are capable of um, traversing the fantasy of returning to the mother uh, and yet um, affirming in a life of, in a life uh, in a very life affirming way um, the creation of something new and that the alternative to this ethical possibility is the embeddedness in an institution which is itself I think an attempt at creating a big other, um, but it turns out to be dead. The starting conditions upon which the institution are founded do not link the subjects in any meaningful way by address. They only link the subjects by explanation. And we already have covered the explanation is a way by which the subject defends itself against death because the explanation is a reification of one's own ego. Now, I think that we have to take into consideration that there's something frustrating about this conversation because we are doing a podcast. I mean, I, I and I think we are we are inching our way via trying to explain to ourselves um, the conditions of possibility in which some life-affirming social reality could be achieved. Um, and I think that this contrast between life and death, it, it, it obviously has to be one that also... Um, makes it clear to those who, I don't know how to say this, makes it clear to certain type of subject that this is ultimately about really being alive. Uh, and that, that's not, that's not, that's, that's not to, to, to um, emphasize death in order to not emphasize life. Um, and the, the, before I pass it on, just the example I want to give for this, is that if you read the first passages of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Thus Spoke Zarathustra spends 10 years in isolation and he comes down to a crowd in a marketplace, um, like a raving lunatic basically, trying to tell these people from an from a inflamed heart that they need to risk their life and limb for the truth and for vocation and for, they need to risk their life for the overman. And they all think he's a raving madman. And so he basically, him trying to emphasize some radical life affirmation through confrontation with death falls on deaf ears. 
So we have to take into consideration that for most people, the idea that one can only affirm one's life through confrontation with death sounds mad. And, 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 and the person who says something like that will be perceived as a madman. And that's exactly what happens to, to Zarathustra. By the way, Cadell, I have a little phrase for you. Uh, Till death do us impart. I will always uh, impart. Uh, I promised always try and impart things um, to you all. And, you know, at death do us join. Uh, Till death do us part. It's uh, bizarre. And like to, to, to give it to and, but Daniel, you'll, you'll get in just now just to to give it this added weight. And, and this, this is this is just uh, to make this fully self-referential is like, like I basically tried to make my career as a philosopher. Ebert is someone who's dedicated his career to, to art and various expressions. We all have dedicated ourselves to a vocation beyond basic needs and to some higher creative vocation. What is possible in our potentialities, our potentialities? The, you know, the four of us here and our, you know, our closest networks, if we were to really ask ourselves what we're willing, what we're willing to sacrifice to create some higher ethical necessity, you know, what would be possible there? And that's not saying that we do that. I'm just saying that to open up the conditions upon which such conversation might be possible. Marvelous. And, um, you know, a, a distinction perhaps between uh, um, death and suicide might be helpful, actually, just to make it blatant. Uh, you know, I think the point that Mr. Ebert is uh, making is that we are already, uh, we are always already in life. Um, and we are always already in ourselves. But we are not necessarily already um, toward death or toward the other, right? And so then when there's kind of, it's almost like since you're always already alive, and you may not even think about it. You just are in being alive, right? Uh, then the corrective that's going to break the AA of just life is going to be a taking seriously death. Now, when we're talking about death, we're not talking about suicide because that would actually almost be a BB. That would just be death, death. That would be just as bad as an AA per se. We are talking about a towardness to death. And what's very important, since we're not literally talking about suicide, you're talking about the death of something about yourself or death of something. And in this case, Mr. Ebert is stressing the ego, uh, the death of the ego. If I'm correct on the language, forgive me if I'm not. Um, you know, so, and, and so there's this notion, interesting enough, where when you are willing to die, but it's not on terms of suicide, right? I think that's where we can get the confusion. We're not talking about you need to commit suicide. We're talking about the willingness to die, which is different. It's not that you're looking, it's, it's in a sense where you're not looking to kill yourself but you are willing to put yourself in the places where you might die. And that sounds like a small distinction. It sounds like suicide, but it is not suicide. And in fact, interesting enough, like that's why a lot of religions are weird. Like a lot of religions are stressing death. A lot of religions are talking these things, but they're, but they're not talking about suicide. You know, they're laying down your life for another, all this language. It sounds suicidal, but it's actually a certain mode of life that makes life alive. You know, it makes life alive. Um, and, um, and, and that's kind of the interesting thing is where it's actually by the only by the incorporation of death that then life becomes life. And it's almost like another way to put this is if you go to, if we use the language of the other and you are willing to die for the other, 
then your ego dies and there's like a little hole now in your in the circle of you i guess then now the life of the other can enter okay so you die to the other that makes an over that's a negation right not an effacement but a negation where now the life of an all death of you is for the sake of the life of the other entering into that total relation i get if we the relation that mr ebert is talking right so we always have to be thinking when we're not talking about suicide and we're instead talking about death you're talking about the death death for the sake of life but it's not your life it's the life of the other of which the idea of the philosophy of black is doing that will actually be a way that you develop with the other you do improve there is a way that you change because you learn not to be so freaking irritable because you actually go with the other and die to the ego that makes you so irritable but you also it's also healthy to have a little bit of self skepticism where you never assume that you've overcome that nature to be irritable so you're always questioning yourself and thus always seeking more training with the other per se and i think the key to this it's funny enough, I though I know that Mr. Bard hates beauty. Ah, I use the language of beauty all the time. But alas, you know, when you um, die to your ego and you let in the life of the other, that then makes that flower more beautiful. So what Mr. Adlin is talking about is how does life become more beautiful? There is in fact a kind of death once you are in relation with the other. For example, you guys may not know this, but once you have kids, you just can't go to Waffle House whenever you want to. You just can't walk out the door and go to freaking Waffle House. When you don't have kids, when you're not married, you feel like Waffle House at two in the morning, you can go get them smothered, baby. You can go get your, your you can go get whatever you want. But once you're married, you can't do that. There's a kind of death that occurs, right? You can't do it. But because you can't go to Waffle House at two in the morning anymore, because you've lost that possibility and died to it, you now have kids. You now have a relationship. You now have a certain relation with another that changes you in good ways. Now, that doesn't mean marriage is always good. It depends on what we mean. But in losing... Um, the ability to go to Waffle House and having that die, you are now in a space with the other where every single day, you know what the funny thing that happens in marriage? To Mr. Ebert's point, man, you do realize how egotistical you are. You do realize that there's a little voice in your head that's always thinking about how terrible people are and stupid and that's irritable and different things like that. And you have to face that. And that's the commitment space, I think, that Mr. Lass is talking about. That is the kind of development, developing with the reality of yourself. Can I just so that say, you can be better for the other. Can I can I just say that, that that whether or not I, I think marriage is one way in which you can find this out. I think the most general way is that if you are ethically committed to long term relationships, if you are ethically committed to relationships which extend across many 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 years and potentially indefinitely then you will figure out how egotistical you are and you will have to confront these edges of, of yourself. It just, it just depends on how, uh, you know, what, what are you trying to create? What social order are you trying to create? Are you trying to create a nuclear family? Are you trying to create a higher order community? Are you trying to create an art house, you know, an art center? If, if you're committed, ethically committed to an art center, uh, then you also will experience a type of uh, death in the same way as you might experience in marriage. Just your baby metaphorically is something other than an actual child. And but I just want to add to, to what that's saying. One, Cicero's on friendship was big to me. We really actually don't have a society of friendship in that kind of deep way, but that's an entirely different topic. I want to stress, I would say that a point of the philosophy of lack is to suggest that those friendships or relationships that last, that grow and become sublimation are ones that are based on an idea of developing with versus developing from out of. 
Like you always need to be de developing with the reality of death, the reality that you get irritable easy and taking that seriously and never thinking that you're at a place, oh, well, I did enough that, you know, death per se, right? I did enough, uh, you know, of that sort of thing. Well, that's when you get in trouble. So then it's just kind of an emphasis that, yes, I'm not, um, certainly, like I said, people can develop from out of alcoholism or different things like that. But almost as a precautionary principle, it's quite good to actually just act like you are only are developing with that tendency so that you don't get overconfident and put yourself in a place where then you fall back into alcoholism. Not because alcohol is bad, uh, but because you are trying to figure out the right ordered relationship with alcohol so that it doesn't take over your life. And we could make millions of examples like that. So I would say, I think it's quite critical because I think to, to understand the philosophy of black, which I think ties into what everyone is saying is a development with, not because there cannot be improvement, but because you're, t because you want those relationships to last and to go to higher and higher levels of sublation um, by taking seriously that negation and lack and so on and so forth. Um, can I just point out a couple of things? Um, I love always pointing out that um, when you get embarrassed, um, that's your um, adrenaline kicking in. Embarrassment is a survival mechanism. So when I talk about death, I'm talking about fucking everything. I'm not I, like I'm talking about status anxieties, all social anxieties, everything that I'm aware of that constrains vitality is traceable back down to a fear of death. Back in the day, the, the, you know, the Greek uh, used ostracism as it's like, ultimate penalty right because it knew or they knew and we still know canceling understands that we still have this primordial fear of the tundra and not being part of the in-group that's why it strikes and palpitates our heart to be canceled or made fun of because it strikes back to our fear of being completely alone. Ostracized from the group is not just being uncool. It's being um, on the precipice of fucking death, biologically speaking. Um, also, I wanted to bring up, I forgot to bring up, when we get to know someone, sorry, I'm harping on this, but all of those biological imperatives, hunger, sexual drive, these things, are born as reactions or preventatives, death preventatives. So when we get to know how, you know, um, how someone likes to eat, fuck, uh, fight, any of those things, what their relationship are to any of those things, that's their relationship to biological imperatives, born to prevent their own death. Um, and and yes, certainly not talking, I just wanted to stress, I'm not talking about suicide. I'm talking about our relationship to all the various uh, mechanisms set in place to prevent us from feeling like we could, um, you know, when we get embarrassed, that's us, that, that's death at play. Um, when we're afraid of uh, speaking out in a podcast, that's death fear at play. When we uh, decide not to take the state, like when I get scared of going on stage and I'm full of fucking tremors, that's, that's status anxiety that I can trace back down to a fear of death. A fear of dissolution of identity and, and being shunned and all of those, the same cocktail of, um, you know, of adrenaline is at play. So, yeah, I just want to bring that up. Uh, this is, this is great. Um, yeah. Uh, quickly to clarify the confrontation avoidance thing, um, hearing that you mean confrontation and avoidance clarifies that totally for me. Um, I was 
you could use the word confrontation and surrender. Surrender has a different meaning to avoidance, arguably. I, um, so in some initial remarks I made, that's definitely relevant. Um, and I understand what you mean in, with respect to confrontation and address as being address being a kind of not avoidance of coming into relationship. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's funny, like what, what, what are, what are we doing this for? Like, um, because I, I agree. And then what, but then I, but then all of a sudden something gets said and it's like, Oh, that's not how I put it. And then we have some fun. Do you know what I mean? Like the, it doesn't matter how I put it. It doesn't really matter that much how you put it um, when it comes to what we're talking about. In some sense, what we're talking about is how to be in relationship with saying some things and putting them down when the time's right. Um, I, Obviously, death is so, um, and I just want to say, Cadell as well, I, I hear everything you're saying. Like, I feel like I understand it. Um, I agree with it in terms of uh, address as being, how you're understanding that as being fundamental to um, the possibility for ongoing, growthful, worthwhile relationship with people in, in something, whether community or society or whatever type of word that wants to be used there. Um, uh, for sure. Um, I don't see, and I certainly wouldn't characterize as only, for instance, these fundamental drives, sexuality, food, all those things you're pointing to, Alex. For sure, death and how one's come to um, express in relation to that reality of expiration and of the the fear of abandonment and all of that um is 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 deeply enabling or demonstrative of the quality of someone's um characterological expression and i can get to know them in this way um i still i, I still don't it i can't that whether it's a whether it's a different emphasis in, and I think, you know, Daniel spoke to this well. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, it, I don't see it all as just a, uh, a response to the fear associated with death. I think there's something, I think the, I think, but it, but it's, it's, but I guess where we're at with this is just, is just, is just language. I mean, I see, for instance, in, in knowing someone also as the, um, so you might say it's a relationship with death to, okay, with the adrenaline, with the embarrassment, with the overwhelm of feeling that, that is, that, that I'm having in, in huge part because it's got this deep evolutionary lineage and I'm in some sense programmed for it in a certain way. And there's all these things about me which are in relationship with entropy, just as you say, fighting it off in some sense, like 
holding um, holding something together, literally. It's the it's the excess from our previous conversation. It's the excess that we can't escape from. We can't run away from it. The ego does everything to prevent this excess from making itself known because it it, it rips everything apart potentially. If you're really in touch with the excess, right? Okay, okay. So I could use that. so we could say excess here becomes energy to form and shape. Like I can do something with that. You could, yeah. Well, it, it's chaotic, right. but you can. But that's this is Nietzsche's dancing star. And that's exactly what I mean, just into how someone forms relationship with that, like for life, like how they build that quality into their being. That's also what I mean about getting to know someone. And so I see ego also, not just in terms of neuroticism. I prefer, if I'm going to use an initial neutral term, I prefer momentum. There's a momentum to it. And then we can talk about like various qualities. Well, Ebert started by calling the ego both neurotic and manic. And I think the manic dimension of the ego is the dimension of the ego that is capable of being, mania is excess. Mania is excess. And, and even Plato would say that mania is divine. And I think that when, when Nietzsche is talking about the overman, he calls it a lightning bolt of madness. I mean, I think he's actually describing mania. But like uh, the, 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 the ego that doesn't accept and work with its mania becomes neurotic. Right. So I, I think that, 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 that that's how, how, how I would describe it. Let me just yeah. give a practical example of, of what I mean by um, death for like really ultimately for me, this, is, this only becomes absolutely essential if you want to, I think, do something great. Uh, do something like great with your life <laughs> that, that to, to, to engage in a, in a massive project and, and to, to, I don't know, to, to leave an excessive mark <laughs> on the world um, is like, so when I was in my, in my doctoral program, what I was actually neurotic about uh, and what I became hysterical about was that the program wasn't developed in a way in which there was a recognition of generational transmission of knowledge, right? So I was becoming hysterical because the older people were not recognizing that they would have to pass on the torch to the younger people. So I was basically becoming hysterical because there wasn't a recognition that in order to keep life moving, there had to be death. And that their egos were preventing it from moving. Now in my current now in my current situation, I'm I'm basically doing a collaborative book project with with Alexander Barr. He has literally stated to me that he picked me to kill him. So he has picked someone to kill him. He is by including death. He gets a longer life. By including death, he extends his being beyond his own life. So what I'm saying here is that, that for me, what this teaches me, what this teaches me as well in my body is that when I'm 50 or when I'm 55, I'm also going to look out for that 30-year-old. 
right? I want to keep that chain going. I want to be a part of something larger than me. I want to be a part of something that, that I want to be a part of something that transcends me, which is in some sense that I have to emotionally accept my own death in order so that I can wisely pass it on. And, and I want to be, I want to be engaged in a vocation. I want to be engaged in a, in a life project with other people who are quote unquote, ride or die. I, I, I'm looking for people who are ride or die. I'm looking for, I want the closest people to me to be, to be ride or die. Otherwise, why am I, why am I close to you? Like if, like, like, otherwise I'll just keep you at a, if you're not ride or die, then I'll keep you at a, at a more distant circle. The people I want at the closest circle are people who I want to have worked this into their bones. No, I, I think the connection of, um, so a few things. One, because we have lack, we can imagine being a rock star. Uh, so we have that excess. And we can pursue to be a rock star. Uh, but as you go, the further you get to being a rock star, the more you can find that that doesn't necessarily fill the lack. Or I think what's interesting here, um, it's, um, there's a way in which what Miss Ebert is talking about with death um, is a kind of loss. Like you lose your ego. There's a kind of loss that's going on. But the more intense the loss, the more it doesn't feel like a death. So we made the example of going on stage, for example. You know, when I lose this pen, it's not really a big deal. I, I feel like I lost the pen. But if I go on stage and screw up, to use Mr. Ebert's example, it doesn't just feel like a loss. Like now all these, like, it feels like a death. Like these people in their heads have this idea of you that's changed and it's like not easy to fix. Like a death is a kind of loss that's really intense. And so the word death, because I do think we're dealing with a language thing, the more on the trail of, you know, you, Mr. Mr. Cadell last mentioned, uh, you know, greatness when you're trying to live a great life. The more you get on trying to live a great life, the more in order to take the next steps, there's more risk you have to take. And the more you realize that the risks you are taking are bigger and more difficult if you screw up to fix and, and, and things like that. And where it doesn't just feel like a loss. Like for example, when you start off writing and you're doing fiction and you send things off to Kenyan Review or whatever, and they reject it, it feels like a loss, but it's not a big deal. But then when you work on a story for eight years and redo it a hundred times and sweat poured in blood and face all the rejection, and then you send it to Kenyan Review, Man, when they when they get back to you and they're like, man, we really liked it, but we don't need it for our magazine. It don't. It's not the same kind of loss. Now it feels like a death. Now it does feel more like a death than just a loss. It's a kind of loss, but it's a word that kind of more intensifies uh, what it's like. It's like um, you know when you break a glass vase, you don't just glue it back together, dang it. It's dead, really, because it's more complexity per se. So I think there's also um, something where the word death. As you get further along, I guess, or you could even say like the bigger the challenge of your ego you're facing, the more it does feel like you have to face death. You have to face the risk of death. You have to be willing to take it on. And if we use Mr. Ebert's example, if you are not willing, and I, 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 you know, I, I will dare say, if you are not willing to accept the possibility of going on stage and it all sucking and not being good, then you'll never go on stage. 
You have to be willing to accept that possibility, even though you may not want that possibility. That is something you have to face and accept. So there's a integration with death. There's an acceptance of the possibility of death in that, in that sense. Like the only way to be driven by excess in a positive direction, as opposed to a neurotic direction is in fact, an acceptance of the possibility of quote unquote loss. And then the further along you get, the more that loss feels like the possibility of death because of the intensity of it. But if you're willing to do that, that can increase the possibility that you're able to look at the flowers, like Mr. Adlin said, and see beauty there and to take it in. And it can have an increase of the beauty uh, that goes on. So I think it's almost like loss, total loss, death. It does feel like a, there's, a, there's an intensity there uh, that I think kind of as you go along, it, it, you're, one is trying to capture in the language. Yeah, and there's also obviously just the, the thing that unneuroticizes that which is neurotic is by bringing it from the unconscious to the conscious, by putting focus on it, um, you basically transmute the neurotic aspect of something. So for instance, I think I've told this story before, but when I used to go on stage, I found a little trick, which was to do something which makes me terribly, terribly socially anxious, which is to smoke weed. And I would smoke weed before going on stage, drum up my anxiety to the point where I had to confront it and then had to surrender because I could go on with just a modicum of uh, status anxiety and just kind of sweat through it, not surrender, and thereby not deliver like the most free fucking bald performance possible. But instead I'd confront the status anxiety, heighten it, confront it, go on stage, giving no fucks because I had to, I had to let go because it was too, too much. Um, I also want to say regarding the beauty of mania, um, when I go to sleep, I've, I've gone to sleep plenty and being slightly influenced by Eastern uh, mysticism, trying to be like, no, relax my thoughts. I must let my thoughts go and relax them in order to fall asleep. But I've actually found that by allowing, embracing the excess thought, I end up going to sleep immediately. Because what I allow it to do, I allow my thoughts to become my dreams. I say, oh, now like I go to bed, I literally say like out loud, go ahead. Like you have full reign now. I was in charge all day. Go for it. Like this is your land. And like my thought, and, and I'll just go to sleep because I'm no longer fighting the excess. And so there's a beauty in, in embracing the mania and it becomes non-neurotic because it's a conscious experience. I'm saying, okay, unconscious, go for it. You know, I'm telling my unconscious, like, now's your chance, like, go for it. And there's something about the embrace of that mania um, that is really beautiful. I mean, some of my most exhilarated times are when I allow, uh, intentionally allow and even facilitate my mania. You know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero, the Magnetic Zero, I made that math up out of the, like, I just wasn't sleeping and it was one of the best uh, experiences of excess I've ever had in my life. And I just love when I'm in a state of excess. But when we get to those states of excess without um, being conscious, of where those states of excess are coming from, then they become neurotic. And we, we end up with these neurotic expressions. Um, yeah. Well said. Well, not oh. to jump in, but you know, there's something about a willingness, then you have no idea where your subconscious is going to take you, right? What if it kills you, right? You know, it might die. So there's kind of what you're saying. And also with Mr. Like what Mr. Bard's saying, he wants you to kill, kill him. Because that also means that he has to be willing to help someone do a work that might be better than his own work, or it could reflect just on that person. You know, there's a kind of acceptance of, you know, I want you to kill me. 
because I want you to advance. And that, that requires a sort of, uh, that's it's difficult. totally the overman. Yeah. The, to- the overman, the overman says you basically sacrifice yourself so that the overman may come to the earth. Right. And, and they do everything though in their power not to let you kill them though. So, you know, that's what creates the struggle, right? Like the patriotic, the, they don't make it easy, right? They're not supposed to make well, it easy because you kill well, them. And, and, and it's, it's like, it's, it take like it's a very target like you ha- it, you can't just let anyone kill you sure it it's a very targeted it's a very specified targeted activity mm. like there you 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 i mean you might look for that person for years and you might go through hundreds and hundreds of encounters mm. Mm. like oh, but, yeah. but yeah no, absolutely. And, um, and then to have, you know, um, to have an older generation that would even want to do that requires a certain facing of their ego, dying to self to make way for that. And, and that's, that's where, missing. yeah, no, we have that's trouble and you've spoken and, you know, well on that, on the generationalism. What's interesting to me, um, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, I, I'm of the opinion that exercises like what, what Mr. Ebert has described of learning to, you know, die to the subconscious, die to the excess are actually exercises that make you able to handle going and seeing that neighbor who annoys you with the the yellow fingernails because you are able to let something overcome you rather than sit there the entire time. You know, like if you're lying in bed and you have those subconscious thoughts rather than go, oh, those are stupid. Oh, those are dumb. They're kind of dumb. I'm not going to let them come over me. That's kind of the same impulse that when you're sitting with that neighbor who you don't think is interesting, say, oh, this person's not interesting. This is boring. I'm not going to come over there. You know, there is that is actually a similar training to the opening of the other, all of which entails a kind of quote unquote death of the ego. Um, and that, you know, is where I actually think like we're talking, like, again, I go back to Socrates. Socrates is putting himself in places where one, he's helping people realize they don't have a um, ultimate ontological, epistemological foundation for their thinking. So then they know where they're located so they can be properly addressed. But then he is simultaneously putting himself in a place where he has to go through a kind of humbling and fight his own emotions. And so that's the location of address. And it would seem as if there are steps, if you will, processes, very practical steps that people can go through to take on more and more difficult levels of uh, address, right? And where maybe doing that exercise where you learn to be at home with your subconscious, which is not easy, could then make you able to go uh, go to the neighbor's house next door that annoys you and learn to. And then you can get even more different, extremely diverse people that if you went straight to, you might not be able to handle because they were too other for you to relate to and you couldn't overcome your own ego to deal with that other because the more intense the difference, the more the ego comes out and is difficult to fight, right? But if you had a gradual process, you could get to that place. And to me, what's interesting is we don't tend to think that way or talk about that way. You know, a lot of people are talking about the lack of rituals, you know, for society, masculine rituals, all these different things. It would seem as if there is something similar to be said about processes of advancing locations of address and different practices to get us to different places. We don't have that. What ends up happening, you get thrown into a random college administration. You're not there and you don't want to talk to anyone, right? And so there's no system of progressing locations of address, which to me um, is needed and communal efforts and so on and so forth would, would think in those terms. I mean, it's so hard to think how you institutionalize these things. Yes. The way the way that the way that it's depicted in Thus Spoke Zarathustra is that it requires the inner motivation of the subject to go on some sort of radical, concrete, singular adventure to come to this knowledge. It's 
it's almost impossible to think about how someone could could institutionalize it in some sense. Um, at least it's difficult to think. Not saying we shouldn't try to think it, but and and then and then ultimately to your point about like this progressive levels of address where ultimately we'd be able to address anyone. I think there's something actually in the philosophy of lack two that's connected there. Where I think I said something like once you get to a certain level of understanding lack, you you can basically you could address anyone. Yeah, you know, like right. that, that like, I, and, I, and I think that that would, I would connect that to um, what I understand as the phenomenology of spirit is this process of symmetry breaking, where the ego in all of its manifestations of deception is a type of pseudo symmetry. Mm. Um, and that what Hegel does is stay with the brokenness of the symmetry he stays with the symmetry breaking to the point where he realizes that what the self is, is negativity in his words. But you could say in the way Eber was saying that the self is the void or, you know, they, he, and Hegel says that explicitly in the preface of the phenomenology of spirit, he says the subject is the location of the void. And that's what the ancients didn't really know. Um, now, whether or not the ancients didn't really know that I basically took that as a key or a clue to, in some sense, do this philosophy of lack series, because what I tried to do was think about ancient philosophical concepts like Parmenides, Dem Democritus, Plato, through the lens of lack, which would be capable of thinking the subject. Because if the subject is the place of the void, if the subject is the place of negativity, and the ancients didn't know that, then if we rethink the ancients from that standpoint, then we rethink the foundation of philosophy. Mm -hmm. and then you know the question is well, well what do we what do we do with that now and i think that where 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 we come to with the concept of address is um at least to my mind is that it's some radically other form of social relationality which i would liken to rethinking friendship which is why i like how nietzsche talks about friendship and companionship and, you know, and just jumping off of, again, the start of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he starts by trying to preach to a crowd. And then he quickly decides after only one day of preaching to a crowd, I should stop preaching to crowds. I need to go find friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that's precise. Mm. I think and, and I want to do that in my own life. Like I want to I want to be more deviating away from crowd, more to the concept of friend and 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 companionship and and but to me it's like a friendship because i think we've talked about this separately daniel that like i know for me in my life my ideal that's like driven me the form of my ideal has always been to do work that i love with friends yeah. and that's like that's driven me now that's hard to do oh yeah I remember telling some people who were in institutions. I remember when I got hired for my postdoc, I, I told some of the people in the institution I was at that that's my ideal that drives me is to like do work with, do the work I love with friends mm. and basically was laughed at. Right. Because like, because that's so difficult to think, like that's so hard to actually pull off mm. that most people think it's just impossible. But I think it is, the, I mean, I think, and oftentimes it is, is impossible. 
but but I think it's 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 something that's worth risking. It's one, it's something worth 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 risking. But it take but but by definition, by definition, if you're doing work you love with friends, then you have sacrificed explanation for address because they're your friends. Right. Okay. Oh, it's very risky. Do we have to sacrifice explanation? Well, that that address gains a primacy over explanation. Yeah, primacy. It's not that it's not that explanation dies, but it 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 has a it has a, address would have a because because I care well, more about that person than than the the system of explanation. Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, kind of what we're doing here is, um, we're talking about address, but we're streaming it and we're attempting to articulate things with clarity. So we can explain what we mean, but we're actually, so there's this dynamic of like, so working with friends, I wonder maybe we're pushing the distinction between address and work, uh, address and explanation a little bit too much, but there's sort of like the work touches, like necessarily touches explanation in terms of how I'm seeing the word at this point. And so, um, it's it's a, it's a it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I've I've found myself today, for instance. I just said I said some things because I felt like they would be worthwhile to say for the context of this four. Not because I thought. Well, I also felt like I, in order for me to find my way into address, I have to express some some element of truth. Um. But there wasn't a there's like a it's like a in in joining into the the dialogue process like this one gives up the some image of their completing what it was they wanted to say like i have give it over to the to the group to work through that thing because it can always continue to go like go on um like i partly why i disagreed with alex is because i don't think i fundamentally disagree with alex actually right but there's a certain sense of like here's some language we're currently differing on a little bit let's put it in there and let's see it get let's see it get worked out so we're going to address each other and come out maybe with explanations that we can use to address each other within the future that will actually be addressing each other and so my whole reason for coming into this four as a as a philosophy of black series was to step into understanding modes of explanation that i don't usually use to refer to things i know deeply how to address like i i don't necessarily feel like i'm learning new things about the nature of address in being with you all i feel like because i can address and because we can address each other, that's what may, maybe perhaps that's what was influencing your desire to bring us together. Cadell, you felt like, oh, I felt like we can address each other in this. So I, through the address, I'm learning ways to express or explain that can help connect us again in the future. But I still have my own, uh, let's say, like I'm not, I'm not chewing totally on all the explanations we're using. They're not going down 100% well, and that's fine. 
And that doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't, and that doesn't matter because what's more important than whether, what's more important than whether or not we all sync up exactly in our understandings, what's more important than if we all agree with all of our own languages is that there is some sort of common process in which there's a reciprocal address. Like that, that's more important. And like, that's, and like, and, and that is, that's very foreign to the university professor's mind. So for example, I, I remember describing to one university professor, my project with sex, masculinity and God, and he couldn't understand why I was interested in doing that project because he couldn't understand that the, the actual process of address with two other guys and being interested in their difference and being interested in building a project that extended outside of the university with people who were not in academia, couldn't understand that that had a value and a meaning and an ethical directive that transcended the propositions of the book. Mm -hmm. And this has value outside of the propositions. The very act of doing this has a meaning which transcends the propositions. The propositions aren't even, I mean, Plato talks about the unity of form and content. And I do think that it's important to have, to at least strive for a unity of form and content. But I think that the, I think Plato would agree that the form has some sort of primacy that the, that, that, that even if we differ in our content, even if there's asymmetries in our linguistic understandings, the fact that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves to a process where we're having an open-ended discussion where we can be critically challenged and proven wrong and we have very different backgrounds and we have very different language games that we use, just the very fact that we do that has a value and that transcends the proposition. Yeah, and we have to, uh, you know, explain the distinction between explanation and address in order to use it well. Uh, and also, too, you know, another way to look at it is that, you know, Socrates is explaining to Euphoro or whatever that he doesn't have a foundation for his thinking because Socrates um, knows he doesn't know anything. Euphoro thinks he knows that he knows something, and Socrates is bringing him down. And now that we're at the same level, hello there. Hey, you know, now we can address one another because we're in this same space together of not really knowing and acknowledging a sort of lack of, uh, of an ultimate foundation for certainty and so on and so forth. Um, you know, explanation needs to be in service and lack. You know, address without explanation is very fragile, right? Arguably before the scientific revolution, you had a lot of religion that addressed people, but it was very fragile. And also it could be very disembodied, right? After the scientific revolution per se, and these are all very general categories, I understand. Then you have an age of a lot of explanation where we know, you know, we know about why the uh, stars move and the planets and so on and so forth, but we don't know the love that moves the stars and other, you know, the star, the sun and other stars to allude to, to Dante, right? So we're looking for that dialectical balance. So they're always in concert and dance with one another. You don't want pure explanation. You don't want pure address. Um, and you need to explain things so that we can kind of exist. We need to explain ourselves so we can exist in a relative. We can never get total understanding of one another, but we can get relative understanding of where we're all coming from. So then we can address one another. Um, and so they they go together uh, in that way for explanation and address. And I do think, it, and then I'll and then I'll pass it on. I think it's quite important what you're saying about friendship. It is not by chance, not by chance. I think that as um, friendship has been devalued or in marriage valued because that's just like one flesh, right? Actually, so this is important that actually philosophy has moved away from, um, was away from relations, 
was a, was toward the individual versus the individual, as Mr. Bard says it. And now, today, maybe because of the internet and the networks and we're all connected, and there's a sense of a, you know, the Viveki meaning crisis or all these different things, or there's something that people even in marriage realize that, wait a minute, maybe something's missing. Now people are starting to philosophically, economically, and all these different things, think in terms of relations, the relations, as Mr. Ebert stresses. And so that, that goes, and so, you know, and friendship, I think the philosopher who has friends, it would, you know, would be interesting to go through the history of philosophy and theology even, and to study the ones, like the people who had good friends, like close friends, versus the thinkers who didn't have close friends, and to see how that comes out in their thinking. Like, I really like the Scottish Enlightenment. They were all pretty friendly to one another versus Immanuel Kant, who took the same walk every single day at the same time. And I hear he was more isolationist. But I don't know. That's just a generality. I'd be curious to do that study. Actually. You know what De You know what Derrida said he would want to know about his favorite philosophers? Oh, what's that? He would want to know about their sex lives. That's really funny. I was about so to say that. <laughs> that's actually what I was going to say. You know, I think, what is it like, uh, Richard, for, for, you know, there was some guy, the Glick, Gluck, who did the, the book talking about the scientist. Newton was a celebrate and he was comparing other scientists. I was about to say that. Very nice. Yeah, but it, it, it's a way of saying, I want to know your intimate relations. Yeah. That, that, it, then that, that's, I think we can say that outside of sexuality is how do you, how do you relate with your most intimate others? And how does that influence your philosophy? How does that influence your, because you have to, because in order to be the type of person who has cultivated deep long-term relations or, or just has tried to um, explore intimacy in that way, that changes the very way you know. Like it, it, it changes you. You, you're a different type of person. But so, so I, I think that that that's an interesting thing that Derrida wanted to know about his favorite philosophers. So, how, how about how about we start thinking about maybe some some final reflections on on the nature of address um, and how it might relate to lack. I can say like as a first starting point when it comes to thinking about this from a, like from the position of Socrates, who I'm happy has come up at least a few times, is that let's not forget that Socrates died for his vocation. You know, Socrates himself um, was not willing to sort of submit to a type of state authority in order to sort of... Um, in order to remain true to his vocation. And also because he had lived well, like he and was he willing lived, to go, exactly. but he's like, actually I've lived well. Yes, exactly. And, and I, and I, I guess that, that to me, at least for me, and maybe my language is different than yours, Tim, but um, that to me brings together our points because for me, this is about living well and living a full life, living a full life, living a rich life, living a life that's full of beauty Living like ultimately what I'm pointing towards, like to me, because I find friendship so beautiful. Um, and I find I find like that it brings so much novelty and surprise and adventure. And I think there's some background noise somewhere. Um, that brings some 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 yeah, a richness into in into life. Um I guess the 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 thing I'll say about um address is that I think at a certain point 
in your knowledge process, um, you can sort of get, I think, at least I feel like I'm reaching this point. You can start to get tired of hearing yourself and you get more interested in hearing about the other. And that's a good tipping point, I think, to reach. Um, there's a weird thing I've done for the last like three or four years, which is that I like obsessively write down everything anyone tells to me, which is kind of weird. And like some people are actually creeped out by that, that like I have like a lot of their speech on my like weird notes. But the reason I do that is because I want to respond as accurately and precisely as I can to what the other person has just said. So really the material that I interact with is the other's speech. And I put the other's speech as primary and I try to respond directly to the other's speech as best as I, as best as I can. And I want to get better at doing that. But that to me is the importance of address is that I've already got sort of a good enough understanding of what I think or my knowledge. And maybe I make this mistake too much times of thinking like my my explanations or my presuppositions matter more than they do. But put, to put them in service of addresses is, I think, my my goal. And and just to, to close out the philosophy of lack, I do think, and the, for historical purposes, these video series, is that for me, it is worthwhile to rethink philosophy from the standpoint of lack or the standpoint of void. And I think that that opens up the possibility of including subjectivity. Um, Parmenides, an absolute being, I don't think he could think subjectivity in that sense. Um, Democritus and Adams in the Void. Did did he know that that was potentially a model for model for thinking the subject? I don't I don't I don't know if he could actually think that. And and the consequent development of materialism out of Democritus's metaphysical foundation would suggest that they couldn't think subjectivity. And then finally, Plato with the forms. Oftentimes, Plato is critiqued by, like, one of my favorite critiques of Plato was by J.K. Chesterton, who said that um, oftentimes Plato speaks as if the ideas exist and humans don't. Um, and, and so I think that that is another way in which if we view Plato from the point of view of an excess, which appears at the site of lack, that's an interesting way to think the subject. And then finally, Socrates and address is that why at the foundation of philosophy do we have this strange zero point of a, of a subject who doesn't know, of a subject who walks around without presupposition and dies for his vocation? And that's at the center, that's at the central point of ancient philosophy. So those are, I mean, that's my, my closing thought. That's my closing thoughts. Daniel? Gentlemen, I've uh, greatly enjoyed this series. Uh, you know, fortunately, lack can't be completed. That's one of the points. So this will continue. Uh, Cadell, beautiful. And again, thank you for the organization of the thinkers, all that you've done. Uh, I've enjoyed it, gentlemen. Um, being in your um, the presence of your minds and hearts has been extremely valuable. And I will certainly look uh, for ways to continue that. So thank you. Um, what? Uh, 
You know, I, th I think I would just like to emphasize um, that the philosophy of black is not nihilistic, um, that this is not some doctrine of uh, some syphysis, I guess, pushing some boulder of some constant weight up some uh, hill of some constant angle for all time as the weather in Hades changes from gray to gray. Uh, this is, um, there is development as we've talked about, there is development, there is movement. Um, I would say that again, I would emphasize the development that is in the philosophy of black um, is a development with, uh, with others, with friends, and with our own capacity to uh, try to preserve our ego. We, uh, we should not think that we ever develop from our ego and our irritations or develop from the need for friends or for other people or from the need to go sit with that neighbor that irritates us. Um, as soon as we do that, <laughs> we're in trouble. And again, even if we do develop from these things, all the better to continue to think that we need to remind ourselves of our tendency to fall back into these habits of the ego that are so um, problematic. Um, again, I don't doubt that people can develop from an alcoholism. Uh, I don't doubt that that is possible, but I find it better versus going to the bar thinking that I've developed from that desire. Then I find out I actually only developed with it and now I'm in trouble and now I'm in a circumstance. How much better to always have a little bit of that self-skepticism, uh, to think in terms of developing with. Also, to think in terms of developing with, you're going to always um, emphasize uh, the need to be with friends and people of that uh, and others, such as yourselves. And um, again, I, you know, there is something, you know, even if the philosophy of lack is not uh, nihilistic, I suppose it is disappointing in some respects to accept the fact that there's no uh, final completion, no product that one can buy that will uh, you know, fulfill them, no uh, status that they can gain, that they will be good. There is something um, disappointing about that, uh, to accept that the uh, nature of reality is such, you know, it's nice to think that if we get the uh, right idea, if we get the right uh, enlightenment, that we can sit on some pillar over the earth and there be content that we can become a uh, some saint and uh, avoid the temptations of sin and so on and so forth. Um, there's something disappointing, I suppose, in um, accepting that life is a ladder off which the uh, saint can fall, but that also means there's a ladder up which the sinner can climb. That also does mean that if the teacher does not sit on some column in the forest over the earth, that means the uh, the Buddha has to be sitting on the ground. And if the Buddha is sitting on the ground, then we can sit with the Buddha next to the Buddha. Goddamn so pillar saints. I know. I tell you what, I was actually thinking Bard as I was saying that. Um, yeah. You know, if, if there's something funny, right? I mean, if, if hope, uh, if hope can be lost, hope can't be found. If, uh, if there's uh, nothing that we need to always work on, well, then there's nothing that we can do. And I, I would say that the philosophy of black really wants to emphasize that, yes, uh, this world will give us trouble. There will be difficulty. But we should not always assume that just because we have trouble means we did something wrong, that we're doing something wrong, that there's some other person out there that has it all figured out, that they don't deal with the same tensions and anxieties and worries that we deal with, that um, they're in the world just like we are, that they are in this with us. We were all born into this world. And we're doing the best we can, and we're doing it together, and we need each other. We are all in this together. We are developing with one another. And the philosophy of like lack will put that emphasis on the with. And there can be development in that. Yes, this does mean that this world will give us trouble. And this does mean that we can uh, never explain that trouble away. But we can go in that neighbor's house and sit on that couch that has the uh, 
cotton coming out of the side and sit there and listen to him tell that story for the third time. And, you know, he still hasn't cleaned his kitchen and why the heck won't he cut his yard? But you can sit there and find out that, yeah, you do get irritated still. Yeah, you're not the moral saint that you thought to. But here's your opportunity to change that. But if you don't take seriously lack, you will never put yourself in that space. And you will never put yourself in the space where you can partake in that story and tell more of a story. Because, yes, this world will give you trouble and we can never explain that trouble away. But that is precisely why we can put ourselves in a place with a story that can address us and that we can address. Yes, like passing it on well. Yeah. Well, beautifully said, Daniel. It's um, it's an honor to hear you bring your remarks to a closing in this series after 12 hours of dialogue. So, and thank you to Cadell and to Alex as well. I suppose we've spoken about address as entering into a relational process of knowing. Uh, so we're also entering a relational process of not knowing. And that speaks to lack a little bit. And there are, of course, so many things to say. And I, <laughs> there's part of me that really wants to say them. Like I'm partly a person who would really like to say things. But I'm also a person that has never quite been able to say what I want to say. So <laughs> that's not that's not totally true. Because things have time limits. And then all of a sudden, we play to those, we play to the constraints. And that was it. Yeah, I think there's so much goodness in these conversations. And by goodness, I mean a quality of thinking and affordances for understanding that if one addresses them and addresses through them, there will be health and intrigue and ongoing process there and so it's really in that spirit that i am saying anything at all especially publicly especially live not because i feel like i can say actually like who i am and what i think totally but because i have known interaction in these mediums to be able to address people and to and and that um i know what it is to be responsive to that energy which is seeking to address me and so in that sense i am optimistic but also pragmatically confident because i know it to be true that friendships in the sense you mentioned could are possible through these interactions and 
through offering a certain quality of energy and openness, but also a rigor and responsiveness and a sense of instantiating boundaries and wrestling with them, offering that into the ecology, offering that into the public space. It helps to develop contexts for participation that none of us will be in and maybe we'll touch on them in the future with people we meet and that's great and uh, so there's so much to these conversations that we're all a part of that are only touched on through this one angle of the philosophy of lack just through that prism of language there's all these other conversations and communities that we observe and take part of and there's lots to come but it sounds as though there's agreement here that a certain quality of addressing each other really must be present in interaction within within and between these various communities in order that that interaction orient and become and change in a way that enables and here, what words we want to use, enables life as well as right relationship with death in this ongoing way. Um, to do that well and to do that fully and to enjoy. So, yeah, thank you all. All right. Wow, this has been great. I mean, Jesus, I've grown so much during whatever fucking the last 10 years this uh, conversation has been going. It's been, it's been 10, it's been a long, right? It's been a long ride. Praise um, Jesus. No, it's been just a couple, it's just been a couple months. But, um, but uh, the integrity and the fucking, uh, the integrity with which I think we've all brought ourselves to this um and which you know the the degree to which i've taken this seriously and prepared for i have a whiteboard i'm staring at you know what i'm saying I, i'm jotting shit down that you say i actually give a shit and when i think about ride or die you know homies um it's like well the die part it's like ride or die it's like i'm down for the yeah and i don't mean i'm gonna kill myself if i'm not taking notes but i'm down I'm like, try, why am I trying? Why do I give a shit about this? Why, why? Um, you know, there's, um, I, th I think there's something to the, un the, the unknown, right? Because I have here a blank piece of paper that is now littered with shit. I needed it to begin blank. If it was already littered with shit, I wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd already have it prefigured. I'd have it pre-dressed. I need to address you guys in order to write this stuff down. I needed a lack to begin with, you know, and it comes back to just that very basic, like inverting and positivizing lack. Um, dearth, this is a little quote, dearth is birth, <laughs> right? We, we cannot have, I could not write this stuff down if the page wasn't already blank. I cannot get into my state of vesselhood unless I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. I, oh, I get filled. I'm getting filled with my, 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 my diamond, 
because if I already know anything, I, I have no need for anything. And, you know, when we're talking about friendship and stuff, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest things in a friendship is the silence. It's like knowing that these silences are corroborated by the other. The grin of like, did you feel that? Yeah, I felt that. What was that? I don't know what that was, but it was, it was nothing and you felt it. And that's the important part. We felt nothing together. And by nothing, I mean the moment, unspoken, the ingress. And I want to bring it back again one, one more time, just to, this is my summary moment, right? To the montage. And uh, Eisenstein's theory of the montage is not really a theory, but it's very basic. Picture of a cat, picture of a woman. Sorry, let me do this again. Picture of a woman, picture of a cat. Back to the woman. Now she's smiling. Three separate images, contiguous. They mean nothing except for us inserting ourselves in between the three images. We tell the story. The lack, the gap is the ingress, the invitation to become ourself. We exist in that interregnum. That's where we have the invitation. I'm not this table that I see when this table, this table is the table. If, if I was what I saw, then I am a table. But it's in between the table and my ability to comprehend or apprehend it. It's in that space in between that I begin to participate myself, that I exist, that I uh, can exist there. And one of the greatest things in the world also, besides being silent with a friend, is watching a movie that allows for, that, that gives us enough gaps and enjoying the same sort of like gaps together. And I guess that's what I mean by enjoying the same silences together or, or having an interest in absence together, uh, participating in our, our, ourselves in the nothingness, in the absence, in the lack and positivizing it because, um, Yeah, that's, I guess that's, I guess that sort of summarizes, uh, and I just want to end on that note of the, the positivizing of lack. Oh, and I want to, um, I want to just, as one more metaphor, you can view something as lack, or you can view it as room. That's, and that's, I think, the easiest, like most pedestrian way to say this for me, is a lack is also room. Anytime anyone I know is like broken up with a girl and they're like, oh my God, it's like, yeah, but look at all this room you have now to grow, to whatever. So these, these, these lacks are also invitations. And when we see them as that, um, what's beautiful about that, and this is where I reintroduce the word confrontation, is then we have to summon courage to enter. And we have to give ourselves permission to enter. And that's where this courageous bit comes and we become in doing that. And this is what I love. This is what most inspires me about other people and about friends. We become, by giving ourselves permission, per permissionaries. Whenever I see anyone else entering the void, I'm like, oh, shit. You know, okay. Whew. I guess I, 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 you know, it's inspiring. And, um, and I'm just glad that you guys all care uh, about uh, the blank page and uh, that you're interested in, in filling it. All right, great guys. Beautiful. Um, so this is, yeah, beautiful. So this has been the Philosophy of Lack series. Just to um, sort of re-articulate, re we've had four discussions now, which have basically spanned 
I think about six months. I think the first was the first one was in July, if I'm remembering correctly, or June. Wow. Wow. Um, and I think the motivation came for me to want to discuss this feeling I've always had since I was a kid of of something something missing, uh, something something lacking, and that that being a very important emotional um, aesthetic place. Um, and a space that is oftentimes left unthought and I think is oftentimes a place that's quickly covered up or otherwise ignored um, and not sort of definitely not seen as something that's like of rich philosophical import and of something that actually is central to our motivations and our desires and the way we experience everything up into relating to each other unto who knows what our future is. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you for everyone who has watched uh, the four episodes and um, is watching with us now. And uh, I hope you all enjoy your laugh. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can find show notes for this series at voicecraft.io slash lack. I thoroughly recommend checking out the work of Daniel, Cadell, and Alex. You'll find links to all of that there. And if you find value in this podcast, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash voicecraft.